calling all women who are curious and called to be women warriors arising in this day and age to heal and grow together. I'm your host, Jennifer Malcolm, self-made entrepreneur, women advocate, and life balance expert. Welcome to the next episode of the Genesis Speaks podcast, the transformative power of women's stories, where every woman has a story and every story matters. And today I am excited because I have, I'm going to say life or almost lifelong, her lifelong friendship and relationship with my cousin, Megan, who is joining us today. So welcome, Megan. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. You are so welcome. So this is bittersweet because we're going to touch on a very sensitive topic that Megan has walked through in the last couple of years and just honor her courage as she comes out just to advocate and to support other families and moms who have walked through similar experience that she and her husband, Anthony, have. I am humbled and honored for you to be here today, Megan. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So I'm going to give you guys a little bit of glimpse into my cousin's world and her eyes since I'm quite a bit older than she is, but our grandmothers were sisters. And so we have been in each other's lives since Megan was born. And it's just been a true honor just to watch her walk through some very painful experiences and also find some joy and find some hope and find some healing, not only for her and her family, but also for other families around her. And she's making a deep impact in the community locally here in Northeast Ohio, but also has some national dreams that she and her husband are embarking upon as well. So Megan Gargano is a native of Cleveland, Ohio, where she co-founded a nonprofit dance company and school, The Movement Project, in 2009, whose mission is to challenge perspectives, evoke social change, and bridge communities through the power of movement. In 2012, Megan received her BFA in Performance and Choreography from Ohio University School of Dance, as well as furthered her studies at Laban Center's Summer Intensive in Greenwich, London. In 2021, the Movement Project relocated to a newly renovated studio in Fairview Park, where they offer year-round programming for professional and youth dancers. In 2012, Megan and her husband, Anthony, purchased a farmhouse in Richfield, Ohio, where they enjoy their time outside with their boxer, Penny Lane. In 2018, Megan and Anthony were expecting their first child, Luna Seraphine, but sadly their daughter was born still on June 18, 2019. Through their grief and love for their daughter, they worked with Cleveland Clinic Akron General to build the Butterfly Suite, a space designed to support families suffering the loss of a baby. The Butterfly Suite officially opened April 29th of this year. During the process of building the suite, Megan and Anthony welcomed to the world their baby boy Arlo in 2020. So that is a glimpse of what we're going to walk through. So ladies, grab some tissues because I already have tears and just even preparing for today. It's something that none of us as women and moms ever want to walk through and just seeing your strength and your tears and knowing the work that you're leaving a legacy behind is just so powerful. And the goal of this is to bring hope to other moms and other families who have walked through this, that you're not alone. And Megan is, is really providing an atmosphere of healing and sensitivity to this issue and to really just embrace your story today. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate it. And I will probably cry too. So <laughs> try to pull together. In my studio, I always have my water, my candle lit, my yep. Kleenex. Yep. I have all of it here. So it's all within reach. So I know this is a difficult topic, but I wanted you just to start wherever you want to start on your journey that you and Anthony walked through of getting pregnant, yeah. being excited for your first child, and then what you guys had to walk through. 
Yeah. Um, I think, you know, in the beginning when we were trying to get pregnant, we really thought it was going to be a pretty simple process. However, it took us about a year to get pregnant and we were kind of at the end of that trying process where doctors were like, okay, I think it's time to call specialists and make an appointment. And we actually had an appointment scheduled. And the week before the appointment, we found out we were actually pregnant with our daughter, Luna. So we were obviously extremely excited. It was so difficult getting pregnant that it was, you know, we learned so much through that process and we were just so thankful that we were finally pregnant and everything was going really well. We went to all of our doctor's visits and it wasn't until our 20 week ultrasound where we went in and as most pregnant women and women who've had kids know, you go to usually the hospital for that. It's a big appointment. They do all these scans and they just kind of run all the numbers and make sure the baby's growing correctly and you find out the gender and all of those things. So we knew it was going to be a little longer of appointment, but kind of right off the bat, we just knew something was up because they were kind of quiet and they were doing a lot of moving around and scanning things. And we just felt like it was going a little longer. And we asked, is everything okay? And the one thing I do appreciate is they did give us the joys of telling us Luna was coming. We were having a girl and we obviously didn't know her name was Luna yet, but found out we were having a girl and super excited. And, but then that's when they let us know they had to get the doctor. There was something going on. So they brought the doctor in and we found out that Luna had what's called an emphalocele, which is basically like the umbilical cord was not properly growing and attaching correctly. And it was kind of like existing on the outside. The connection was just not correct. And then there was also, they were seeing some holes in her heart. So immediately for them, those are two big red flags that there might be some genetic issue. And so Right away, they felt like we needed to do the amniocentesis, which is, it's terrible and no one should ever have to experience this. And it's even worse when you're experiencing it in the midst of your whole world falling apart. And they take this huge needle and they, they say, you can't move, you can't move at all. And you're like, well, I'm sobbing uncontrollably. So this is pretty difficult. So that was traumatic. And one of the things that happens throughout this whole process is trauma. And I think that was one of the, the first big initial ones. But we got through it, but we had to wait a few weeks before we found out even what was going on. So they processed it fairly fast, but we did find out, thankfully, that the two issues were separate issues and they weren't genetically linked, which meant that she could overcome them easily. So the plan was we basically at that point got a whole system of doctors and maternal fetal medicine doctors that we had a team that was going to be part of Luna's whole new birth plan. And so basically they were going to have a surgery for the emphalocele afterwards. And we were monitoring it all the way up through the pregnancy. And it was really small. So it ended up not getting very big. It was supposed to be like a very simple fix right after she was born. And then the holes in the heart actually ended up healing on their own. So we were so thankful for that. And we were so optimistic because everybody just kept saying, these are all overcomable. There's nothing that should be stopping anything. She should be totally normal. I shouldn't have any medical health issues. So we were pretty confident there. I was going in basically every week towards the end there, twice a week. I was going into the hospital for more scans, very intense scans. And I was going in for, to my regular doctor, or my OBGYN for non-stress tests so that they were just extra cautious. And then basically it was like 37 weeks pregnant. She was supposed to be induced our 39th week because of all the issues they like to induce and that way they can control every situation. 
37 weeks pregnant on the weekend, we noticed there was a little change in movement. And I think we regret a lot in that weekend, but it's like, can't really put yourself through that. So we try to like, let that go. But it's hard to determine like what you're feeling, especially the first time you're pregnant. And as a lot of women know, like you can read out the wazoo, all the things you're supposed to be experiencing and feeling. And I think for us, we were chalking it up to nerves and anticipation. And I think I'm fine. I'm feeling her move now. And, but there was decreased movement and we waited a little bit, but we eventually ended up going to our doctor. And Anthony went to work because I was like, that morning I felt fine. I felt like the baby was moving. He went to work and I went to the doctor. My mom just drove me because I was pretty far along at that point and didn't feel like driving too much anymore. And she came with me and we went into the doctors. I, I wanted to do just a heartbeat check and they were having a little bit of issues finding the heartbeat. And typically this, this has happened before because Luna kind of moved all around. She was just like this wiggle worm and they're always like, oh, where'd she go? So they're, they're searching around and couldn't find anything. So they put me in another room and just said that we're going to get the, you know, ultrasound machine and double check and things like that. So I waited a little bit of time, but honestly, nothing ever went through my mind that something was wrong. And then when we went into the ultrasound room, they started to do the scan and I just knew right away based on their faces that she wasn't alive anymore. I can't imagine the fear and the emotions of getting that diagnosis at 20 weeks and walking through it very purposely, very cautiously, very medically, and then overcoming those Yeah, and, and feeling like, okay, there's a little bit of a sigh of relief. Yeah. Doing precautionary measures, making sure that you have your birth plan going, and then still then coming back to this devastation of being there and not, I mean, I've had three babies and knowing like, all right, you operate in excitement and fear and you don't want to be overly cautious or under, like it's that balance of emotions and unknown factors. And I'm really sorry to hear your story and to hear just the, the details of what you guys really walked through during this time. Cause that type of heartbreak, yeah. I know she's going to be with you forever. Yeah, it is. And I think the thing that I think gets me when I think back to like when it initially happened was just, I never, like none of these things ever cross your mind. You're, you're not really prepared for any of this. It's not like you want to walk into your first prenatal appointment and they're like, here's all the things you need to worry about. But honestly, there was a need for understanding the scope of being pregnant and what can happen. And I do feel, and I do know that there's a lot of research going on where I think, unfortunately, a lot of prenatal medicine is tied to the way in which our insurance system works. And we're not really monitored as much as we could be in terms of ultrasounds because of the way insurances bill ultrasounds. And I think that that, not to the fault of the doctors, these doctors are working around the clock to do everything in their power to guide you through your process, but their hands are also tied behind their backs in a lot of ways. And I think that the way that medicine needs to change to prepare women and also to be preventative in, in these things from happening, but it was just not, you know, hearing the words she doesn't have a heartbeat was just nothing we expected. And I think one of the worst things about that was having to call Anthony. I was just like, I can't believe I have to call him and tell him that. This particular moment, I don't think about a lot. Hearing that she passed away, I could literally see every single thing that happened. It's just like being right back in it. But a lot of my trauma has been tied to that particular room, to having to call my husband after appointments and things like that are, are 
difficult. But from there, I ended up calling Anthony and obviously he was devastated and he was very close actually to the hospital. I asked the doctors what I do now. And they're like, well, you have to go over to the hospital. And we weren't far. We were only about maybe like 10 minutes. So drove over to the hospital, met Anthony there. And sadly, we knew at where we had to go because we literally two days before just did a hospital visit. So it was just like, we were so ready and excited. We just took a class on what to expect. So we went up to labor and delivery at the hospital at Akron General, and we went up to the, the desk in labor and delivery. And I tried to explain and they kind of just knew right away based on like how we were responding and it kind of just was a whirlwind from there. They brought us to a, one of the rooms in labor and delivery and we waited for a while with doctors here and there in and out, nurses coming in, taking care. But eventually we had a, a resident doctor who came in because my actual doctor was out of the country actually. But a resident came in and he sat with us and he explained what, what was going to happen next. And he's like, you know, we're going to do an ultrasound. We have to do another confirmation. And of course that was really difficult, I think, especially for Anthony because that would have been his first, I had already seen it. Right. So, you know, I think that that was really hard and there was just a lot of hope that, you know, maybe they were wrong. And that piece of, I'm sure going into labor and delivery and seeing your guys walking in with yeah. pain and anticipating those needs, like you're grieving and you're scared. And how was that environment for you? And, and even not having your own doctor there and having, you know, someone right. step in and and we all know that's part of the medical process of, yeah. you know, here's, here's my backup. And, but that we, we put that into our birth plan and we do put that into, if I'm out of town, you have those candid conversations with your doctor and your caretakers oh, through that. So how was that experience just going into the hospital and, and for you, and I can't imagine, like you've already walked through this in the room where you get the news first. Yeah. Now you're with your best friend, husband, yeah. Anthony and grieving with him alongside him has to be just horrendous. It was. And I think when it's happening, it's kind of like slow motion, kind of happening really fast at the same time. I think in looking back, the things that were really, really difficult, obviously you're going to be walking into a situation in the hospital where it's all meant for live births. And most hospitals, you walk right past the gift shop and it's all baby stuff. And you're walking past all these pregnant women. And that's a lot. I think the hardest for me and Anthony was being in the room where it's intended for live birth, you have all these monitors and we literally just took the class two days ago and none of the machines are getting hooked up to me and there was no need to do monitoring of the baby and those types of things like the board that says mom's name, dad's name, baby's name and just things like that. Like they did a really good job at trying to remove anything that they could. There's only so much you can remove though and now, looking back, I found out that they do put like a little sticker or a leaf or some kind of indicator on the doorway so that when anybody who comes in staff-wise, when they see it, they know that this is somebody who's who's lost a baby. So that does help quite a bit because, and we were thankful for this and lucky because I know this isn't the case for a lot of people and still isn't for a lot of people, but we never really had any issues like that with staff where someone was just kind of ignorantly coming in and not paying attention to that. It definitely was hard not having our doctor, but I think as well, the staff was just so ready and equipped for that experience because we were working with the residents there. They, they rotated on and off, but we kind of had a few doctors and a few nurses that were our primary caregivers. And the first doctor, he just sat with us and he said, what's your daughter's name? And we said her name, Luna Seraphine. And he goes, do you want us to refer to her as Luna? And yeah. And 
So every time, like he would just say her name over and over again in any conversation. And that's huge. Yeah. Because after a while, you start to realize, like, you're not going to hear her name very often. And you're so excited about a name. You know, we didn't share it with anybody until she was born. And it's like, wow. In our case, like we, we say her name a lot and our family does too now. But I think right there, we kind of thought, well, we're never going to really hear her name. And so that is a big gift that others can give to lost families is by talking about their children and referring to them by their name. And that was really helpful in the process there. Basically, after we kind of got everything initiated there, and he explained that we were going to be doing a full vaginal delivery. They don't typically recommend C-sections because it can cause complications. And for the health of everyone as much as possible, they try to do vaginal deliveries. So I went through an induction and, you know, they induced me and couldn't tell you the times because time kind of blurred at that point. I mean, I want to say I went into the doctor that day, maybe around 10 or 11, and we probably started maybe the induction between one or two or something like that. And I went through getting dilated and they had to put in a balloon to speed the process up because I really wasn't quite ready to deliver. I still had a few more weeks and it was just like a full-blown everything. I did get an epidural, which in itself is terrible, but to, again, it was kind of reminding me a lot of the amniocentesis where like you, they don't want you to move and you have to hold on to the nurse and your husband can't even be in the room when they do that. And so you're, you're just crying and that's, that's hard. Um, that was a hard part, but yeah. And then we just at a, like 1145, I want to say 1145 AM, I think it was the next day we had Luna and gave birth vaginally and she was delivered and they right away, they kind of just, they, they measure them and, you know, they measured her and did her weight and, you know, they tried to to do all those little things for you. And then uh, they kind of wrapped her up for us and held, put her in a little blanket and handed her over to us. And we basically just got to spend as much time as we needed with her. We had a ton of family that was kind of in and out the whole time. They could stay as long as they needed. We first stayed in the first initial room for a while. Once my legs, you know, came back from being numb, I was able to move to a different room, which was still in labor and delivery, but it was a little bit further down the hall. It was a little bit bigger of a room, a little bit more comfortable, but it was still very difficult because it was just a regular labor and delivery room. Typically what happens is mothers then go on to like the maternity ward. And so we stayed in labor and delivery. And I mean, they do did put us at the end of the hall to try to kind of dampen hearing other babies being born and families coming in, but you can hear it. And I, at that point, you know, I'm, I'm exhausted. I haven't slept. We have, none of us have slept. And they basically said we can have as long as you want. There was an amazing device there called the cuddle cot, which is designed to keep the baby cool, which allows us to prolong as long, really as long as you need to spend with the baby. So we did utilize that. And we had, the nurses were really good about trying to encourage different things. They said, you know, someone can come and take photos. And at first, like that's, you're like, no, I don't want to do that. And like, it's just like, no, like, and then they just keep kind of bringing it up. And I was so thankful they did because we ended up doing it. And um, now I lay me down to sleep came as a nonprofit and they came in, took all these amazing family photos. And later they send you an album and they're just gorgeous. And they're just done in such a beautiful way. But I mean, that's our family album and our only photos of Luna really. So, you know, we really did treasure those. 
And for us, we, uh, we only really stayed about a day with Luna. In hindsight, like I wish I would have done longer, but I was having a hard time with the process of falling asleep. Like I needed to sleep. I was exhausted, but I just couldn't wrap my head around like going to sleep and her being there without me. So I felt like I had to cherish um, every moment. I mean, yeah, that has, that has to be such a dichotomy of emotions of you're physically, mentally, spiritually exhausted, spent, heartbroken, and cherishing those moments and those tender times with Luna and grateful to a staff hindsight, grateful to a staff that continued to prod or to encourage some memories that you and Anthony are now so grateful for and so thankful for. In that state, you're probably like, that's the last thing I want to do is to document or have this, but now you have such tender pictures and memories of Luna as well. So I can't imagine just your physical exhaustion and then also wanting to take every moment with her as well. Yeah, it definitely is a a give and take and a back and forth and a whole mixture of emotions. And I think we often like to say, Anthony and I, that like we have the best experience in the worst situation of our lives. And it really mattered was that the environment in which the staff created for us provided the ability for us to find a path towards healing, find a path towards living a life as lost parents and having our daughter involved in our lives still. And I think that was like a a really important step. And we really recognized that pretty much right as we left the hospital, like we just knew. And I think they did so many things for us between the photos, between creating a beautiful little box with all these keepsakes with her hair and her tape measure and her stats and just a lot of different things. There was a a weighted bear they gave us with her name on it and they did molds of her feet. So we physically can like feel and touch the size of her feet and hands. And, and it's, it's hard as you're getting wheeled out that hospital because they try to do their best to take you through a way that's the least through the maternity ward, but you know, you're, you're getting wheeled through everything and past the gift shop again on the way out. And when you're getting into your car with a weighted teddy bear without your child and, you know, the car seat's in the back because we have had it in there for weeks. And I think that there's only so much you can do coming out of that. And they did as much as they could to, to really try to help us on those first few steps back into our lives. At what point when you guys got home, did you and Anthony have these crucial conversations that were like, we, we want to be a part of other families going through this. And I know this goes into your nonprofit and, yeah. and the work that you guys are doing now, but how long did it take for you guys to even be open or creative enough to say like, all right, here's what we experienced. And the care was beautiful and kind and tender. And there are some of those nuances that it's the attention to detail that would make that experience, I don't know, more impactful or more, I don't even know what the right word is. How long did it take for you guys to come to that realization? I would say, I mean, as everyone knows who's gone through this loss, it's you're really in a fog for a long period of time. I mean, I'm talking a year plus and, you know, you go through a whole array of emotions and inability to function and inability to find purpose in anything. And it was kind of like this process of experiencing all these emotions and these inability to, to reconnect is on a human level into the world. I mean, you just feel like you can't do anything 
but there's this overwhelming sense of how do I honor my child? How do I connect to her? How do I share about her? And I think like, you know, we were doing a ton of stuff. We, we planned a memorial for him. We, a celebration of life. And I was just painting these lunar rocks, I call them, and these little rocks that we painted and everybody got one. And I was just for weeks and months painting lunar rocks and like just so many hundreds of rocks because we had a lot of people come to her, her celebration of life. And, you know, so we did that and, you know, we just kept trying to think of things. And I think right away we knew we wanted to do something. And even that it was just a couple of days after delivering Luna before we even maybe might have been even before we ended up burying her. We went to the store and picked up things to take to the hospital and to our doctors and our other staff to just give them like some, a, a basket of just thanks. Because we really knew that there was something that was happening in that experience that was tremendously helping us. And we couldn't really like figure it out and formulate it right away. But we knew, you know, even that first weekend. And I think over time, we just started to kind of think about it and we're like, what are some things we can do? And we just always kept going back to like how amazing like the staff was. And, but then also like we were, we were in counseling and we were talking about all the things that were really traumatically affecting us. And there was a lot of trauma and a lot of it is associated to space, like the physical space you're in, the experiences, the inability to have care for you that is specific to what you're going through, not just like a, oh, an add-on because now you're going through this, we're adjusting. And in that, those things were really coming up and we're starting to be able to formalize what that experience was and, and how do we reduce this trauma and, and meeting so many lost parents. And, you know, we started going to Precious Parents, which was a organization through Akron Children's of lost parents who all come together once a month to kind of just connect and talk. And we were going to that and from hearing all the stories and, and it was just all so clear, like the, the things that were really making it difficult for anybody to process and, and to move in a new direction with their child in their lives. And I think it's not moving on or moving through. It's just like finding a new way of living and felt we wanted to do something with the hospitals. We were like, there's something clearly not working in terms of the space, in terms of what are all the things from the moment we went in and to the moment we left that we could change that would support what's already being done tremendously well by the staff. But there is a lot that needs to be changed. And that's kind of where we thought, okay, let's reach out to some people we know. We were friends with the, the nurse who led the classes for us at Akron General, and she helped connect us again through to email for with some of the, the nurses that we had worked with at Akron General, who were also on their bereavement committee. And they like helped us connect to like the nurse manager and kind of like some other people. And we just sent like an email out where we had an idea that we wanted to create a space that was conducive specifically for taking care of patients and families that are having a loss in the hospital and from the moment they step through the doors to the moment they leave. And we didn't really know what that looked like, how that financially would even come about, but we knew that that was like a need. And we just sent an email out after getting those addresses and 
immediately like and, and you know it's the power really the power of women because it really was all women <laughs> and <laughs> they're all like we're getting it done uh, so like i don't care what anyone says it's gonna happen so <laughs> so they all just you know band together and we're like yeah this sounds great i don't i don't care what the red tape is we'll figure it out so you know they helped us put together a fundraiser and anthony and i sat down and created language for formalizing our idea, which ended up being called the Butterfly Suite. And it's a space designed for families who are going through a loss. And it is specific to creating not only an environment conducive and meant specifically for that situation, but also it's to create a space where they can build memories that will last a lifetime with their child. And all with that in mind, while receiving, you know, the, the tremendous care that we received at the hospital. So April of this past year, you were able to officially open and yeah. launch uh, the Butterfly Suite. So to just describe that type of context and environment, what a family would experience now compared to yeah. what you and Anthony experienced when you guys went through your loss. Right. So as we all know, hospital systems aren't perfect. So there is definitely aspects that we still, a lot is out of our control and it requires, you know, people way up to really reevaluate how things are done in the hospital system, specifically for females, women who are giving birth and what are all the needs for that. But, you know, basically now what can happen at Cleveland Clinic after in general is when families arrive, they will first go to labor and delivery. That's kind of just the functionality of you have, it's, it's a birth. It's not a live birth, but it's a birth. And it requires the same amount of medical use. And right now it's built in the same unit as all other live births. So they first will go there. However, you know, like I said, there is attention to making sure they're usually in a room that is furthest away from anything else going on. And they will take more care in trying to remove things from the space that is triggering, but you will first go through the full labor and delivery there. And then once typically it's about two hours after um, you give birth, you will then be moved into a private unit that is kind of, it's a wing that's like down the hall and off separate from the maternity ward, from labor and delivery. It's actually their old maternity ward wing. They do have a, a side of it that still functions, but the way it's designed, it has its own separate entrance. So you don't have to go through maternity ward and the other functioning maternity ward is like further down. So you're not anywhere near it. So it's very secluded, but basically you would go there and you have, it's, we call it the suite because it's a little bit larger than your typical room. It kind of has two spaces. You walk right in and you have kind of like a sitting area where we have a big full, it's like a full couch that pulls into a full bed, which if everybody knows those little half futon situations at the <laughs> hospital are horrendous. So we were like, absolutely. That's number one that has to have the function of opening into a full couch. Right. So that way, not only partners or family, you know, anyone who's there because you will usually have a lot of people, you have a full functioning bed so that we knew that was a need. In addition, we have, you know, a little sitting area with a, a rocking chair and a bookshelf for books that were kind of curated based on it's it, again, these memory building areas. So that's 
it's one of the things you're going to find throughout the whole suite is, you know, memory building. One of them is this little area where you can sit, you can read a book to your child. You can, we have a little Bluetooth speaker with some songs that you can select from and you can hook up our, you know, Bluetooth wise and play music for your child. Those are, the, that's one of the kind of first little areas. But in general, the whole room is designed a little bit more serene, like a home-like environment. We were able to get different paint colors and beautiful art throughout the space. And we really tried to emulate the home experience because I think one of the things that we're always really missing is, you know, you're, you're not going to take your child home and your child's not going to go in their nursery that you, you put together and you're not going to have these moments. And if we can help those memories that you look back on being in a different mindset than an unused hospital room because it's not for a live birth, you know, that we felt was really helpful. So included in the space in that first room, we also have, we have like a little station for refreshments. Eating and drinking is really hard during this process. And one of the things that kind of kept happening to us when we were in the hospital was missing the window of when to order something because they're like, you should, you got to order now. We're like, I don't want to eat. Like, but then when you're hungry, you can't order. And you're like, it's just, it's a mess. So we, we purposely put in like a fridge and a refreshment station and things for families that come in and having that just accessibility there, I think was important. We also have a beautiful plaque for Luna as well as we dedicated the space to Luna and all the other babies who go too soon. And then transferring you kind of there's like a little hall you kind of step into the bedroom space and in here we have a much larger bed um it is still a hospital bed but it's we found a version that was a little bit more simplified you don't see as much of the hospital workings of it we were able to put up a curtain in the back so that it hides all of the hospital fixtures and different things like that we have beautiful lamps in there, bedside tables. And then real importantly, like by the, the bed is what we have is the cuddle cot, but we outfitted it in a, it's kind of like a smaller little bassinet crib, which we felt was important so that it was a little less clinical. The cuddle cot's amazing, but it is hard when it's, you know, just kind of in this plastic thing that's moving around. And it's nice to be able to put it in something that, again, you can reframe your mindset and your memories. So that was generously donated to us from Ashley's Embrace, who was another fellow lost mom at Akron General. And the other elements we had that were really important in the room was dressing your baby. So we have a little, in the closet, we have a ton of different outfits that they can select from, you know, from very, very early losses. What we have, I hand sewed all these, what they're called angel wraps. And so like these little pouches that you can put your child in and you can kind of wrap them up and tie a little bow. And, you know, those are important for the really early losses because they don't fit in your baby's not going to fit in your traditional clothing. And um, we wanted to make sure that we had something very special for everybody. And we made sure they were kind of gender neutral because sometimes you don't know the gender at that point. And so we try to just be mindful of all those different things and have lost sizes for all. And then in addition, you go into the bathroom and we have a, in there like an area for bathing your baby. So it's all set up that you can give your baby a bath and we have all these little keepsakes that you can take like the brush and the comb and we have a little bag for those and we have toiletries for the parents so that, cause you don't plan for this typically. So you don't have a bag and not having all those things is really difficult. So 
we have all that there. And then in addition, we made sure the bathroom was brand new renovated. We have like regular home-like towels and our bed linens are the same. And we also have this beautiful quilt that is handmade on the bed and families get to take that home with them. Those were donated. They all get like a tote bag that is just filled with all the things that, you know, the nurses put together and, and different things like that. But I think one of the things that's really unique about the space is to help with the nurses and the tremendous work they do is we put up these little signs. They're like kind of discreetly located, but little signs that kind of just help guide families through the experience in the space. So that like, you know, when the nurse says something to you 8,000 times, it's just going in and out. You can't hear it. She's telling you, thank God she's telling you, but you can't memorize any of that. So we put these little signs so that when it is, you're able to absorb, okay, yeah, I do want to read, you know, a book to my child. I do want to give them a bath. And then, you know, that might be the first time you're absorbing it. And even though it's been said to you like 12,000 times. So that was kind of important was like creating an intuitive space that allowed for it to happen in your time. And, you know, families can stay there as long as they need. There's no rush. They have all that they, the time they need. They have staff still there taking care of them. You're still, you know, in the hospital. So we do have the ability in that room to fully take care of mothers who are postpartum. And so they're, they're fully taking care of that, but we were able to design a space that kind of stripped out what well, wasn't necessary, but was actually purposefully designed for their needs, for their mental needs, their physical needs, and for their partners and their families. Just being really mindful that it's just, this doesn't just affect the mother and their ch- the child. It's, it's a big ripple effect. And we really just wanted to be as mindful as we could. Did you and Anthony come up with all of those touch points or were you collaborative with other families that had lost because the attention to detail is magnificent and to be able to guide a grieving family who is not listening and not in the right mindset, but a gentle sign that guides them through creating those memories and and having a healing, even in the trauma, not re-traumatizing and not taking further into a wound, but really trying to gently guide the families through this, how did you come up with all of these different unique ideas? Yeah. I mean, I think at the forefront was like, we cannot re-traumatize people. And like, that was like super important. And we were able with the, the nurses and the doctors, they were very mindful. They, they have experienced a lot of t- taking care of patients that are going through this. And And also like just the amount of people that we have met through this process, their stories informed the way in which we designed the space. And I mean, one of the things, the reason, you know, at first the hospital was like, well, do you want to call it like the Luna? And it was, you know, we didn't want it to really, it wasn't, it's for Luna in her honor, but it's not about Luna. It's about who's ever experiencing that, like they need to be able to walk in and say like, this was made just for me. Like this was made for my loss and my experience. And I want to see my baby's name, like, you know, a part of that. And, and we do, that's why we say like to all the babies who are lost um, and gone too soon. You know, I think that that was really important. And we felt like that kind of needed to be at the forefront of it. And that's how we really came up with all of the little things, you know, it was a lot of like talking to others and what was, 
what were the things that were really difficult? And then for a lot of us, so much of it was the same. We just had a lot of very similar things, but then you had to be really mindful of different experiences that people are going through, different backgrounds, different life journeys, and being mindful of all of those things. Someone might have more than one loss in, in the, you know, they might have twins and there's just like a whole gamut of different things and trying to just be really mindful of that. And I know that like, we haven't covered everything. And I think that's one of the things that we look forward to working with the hospital on is they are going to be kind of like monitoring the process of this and like, okay, do an assessment through it. And, you know, in a year kind of like reassess, like what's working, what's not working, what can we add, what can we adjust? How can we just, you know, continue to better serve these families that are here? And that's kind of the approach to the space is knowing like when we have to make adjustments and when things aren't working and some of the obvious things. I mean, there was a lot through the process of being like the nurses and the doctors all got it. But like when we sometimes had to go through some of the red tape, there was a lot of like pushback on certain things. And, you know, you just have to be like, no, like you don't get to decide that because that's not your experience and you just don't. And we thankfully had some really powerful women who were just like, that's not happening. Like we're not doing that. And like, you're going to do it this way. And I don't care what you say. Or there's a doctor that we always go to. She was just like, I got it. I'll take it. So, you know, so that was kind of like that advocacy. And it's, it's who you know, sometimes to push things through. And so where do you envision the butterfly suite to go? Because I know you guys want Akron general, but that's just stage one of a bigger picture that you guys are putting. Sure. So right now we're not a nonprofit yet or anything like that. I mean, I do run a nonprofit in the arts community. So I do feel like at some point that is probably the route we'll go. I just am familiar with it and I feel like we'll get the most expansion from that, you know, process. But in the meantime, how we really envision the, the, the butterfly suite going is we want, it should be everywhere. It should be standard, whether we're making it or somebody else is making it. And, you know, we've had a lot of people reach out to us and we have consulted with a lot of people very informally, but there's like families all over the country who have reached out and, Hey, I want to do this here. Can I have a call with you? And can you give me some pointers? And we do, we have a call. we talk through all the things that, you know, they might be running into especially pandemic era times, everything was delayed for us because of that. And so there's a lot of that process, but yeah, we've been consulting with a lot of people, but I think in general, how we really see it happening is in Northeast Ohio, we first want to start branching out to all the labor and delivery hospitals here. We want to make sure there's a butterfly suite in every labor and delivery. And then going beyond that, the rest of Ohio and just really pushing past And I think, I don't know if that's all just with the butterfly suite. It's, I would love for it to be something that's launching from us, but I love it even more when people, they can't wait and they have to, they have to go and start doing these things because we don't have the money to just, you know, make it happen. We had a fundraiser for the butterfly suite at Akron General, and that's how we raised the funds to make it happen. So ideally, I think what I challenge hospitals to do is to revisit their budgets and say, this is what we need to do in our hospital. And that's how we're going to finance these things. And then bring in people like us or other specialists or other families who are experiencing this to create spaces like this on their dime, because really it's something that should be standard and it shouldn't be having to go through, you know, this three-year process of making it happen. It should just be something that 
really hope happens overnight. It should be standard care. We see it a lot in different countries. The UK is where we're starting looking this up and we're like, there's maybe a handful in the US, but it's not necessarily specific, like the way that in which we created a whole space of memory building. They might have like a bereavement room, but it's not necessarily tied to sometimes prenatal or that's kind of a unique element, but we are seeing this like in other places as a standard. And like, that should be something that for sure needs to happen here. I mean, 26,000 babies a year are lost in prenatal. And that's, you're not, you're not even talking about other losses, first year losses. And a lot of miscarriages aren't even, sometimes you don't even know they're happening. And, you know, there's just so much, there's just so much that people don't realize that this is something they always tell you, oh, this is rare. Like it's, it's not that rare. It's not that rare because every time I talk to somebody, it's either they've had the loss or someone else they know has had the loss and that it's really not rare. So I'm beyond humbled by your story and your desire to honor Luna and to really have this space to, to honor your daughter, but that you have a broader vision to really come alongside families and to create a safe space and an intuitive space and a warm space to create memories in something that no women should have to walk through, no family should have to walk through, but that you've taken your heartache and your heartbrokenness and the honoring of Luna and expanded that into a healing center and a place where you don't get re-traumatized and you do have a place to have comfort and have family and, and to have those little details taken care of for you that Mm -hmm. you're not trying to think that through. And I love the way you just said is this should be on a budget line in the hospitals that just, this is important because it's a part of the process. And, you know, most hospitals have a chapel or most have, you know, a bereavement room or whatever those look like, but to expand it beyond those two that come into the budget line, but to take beyond and to make that experience as so such a loss for words because I don't, I don't want to be insensitive but yeah, it's you don't have to think you don't have to think a, the details you don't have to think yeah, about- pulling it into the forefront and just knowing that it's it's a part of the story for a lot of people and it should be at the forefront of the way in which we take care of women when they go to the hospital and I think that that is this needs to be in their budget line, but also the idea that there should be a space specifically to have children who are, you have lost and in, in deliver in a space that's designed for that. That's enough, like, you need to build that component so that we aren't having our births against next to live births and, and making sure that that's a part of it. And I, I think it's just an awareness and understanding that this happens and it's, it shouldn't just be, oh, I'm sorry, this happens you know, this is what we'll do, but it should be, this happens and this is what we do. Right. And yeah. correct. Cause you're putting forth foresight and intention yeah. to it versus being reactive. And it sounds right. like the staff was amazing for you and Anthony, but going, going beyond that and making that being a forethought and not a reactive. Right. I have two last questions for you. Yeah. If women want to get involved or donate or families are hearing this, how do they learn more about what you guys are doing? Yeah. So we did make a website called the butterflysuite.org and you can visit us there. We did create, it's kind of like a little click through form where you can kind of 
tell us your story. You can say how you'd like to connect, whether you're, you know, I'm a nurse and I work in labor and delivery and I want to bring this to my hospital. I'm a doctor or I work at a hospital or my sister lost their baby or, you know, any gamut. I'm a fellow lost mom or parent. And I think like that, that's probably the best way to connect with us. Like I said, we don't have, we don't have formalized the next steps, but the more that we can connect with people and know that people need this here and there, like I said, there's ways that we can give advice and step in and start to create that process wherever you're at and hopefully get the support that's needed for those projects. But that's probably, you know, the best way to connect with us. And for us to also give you some more resources, especially for fellow lost families, things that can help you in your, in your journey, in your process. And we'll make sure that all this information is on our website and also on our social media that it's one click and you can connect with yeah. as well. And then I'm going to end up on a joyful note. What is your, your favorite thing to do with little Arlo? Oh gosh. <laughs> well, he is a bundle of energy. That's for sure. I would say the new thing that's been really fun we've been doing, he is wearing us out a little bit with it, but he basically, the moment he wakes up, well, one, he asks for a muffin first. That's his you know, go-to. My mom makes the muffins. And so he just requests them. But the next thing is walk, walk, walk. So we go on walks 24 <laughs> seven. It's literally like, three to four walks a day. And he, it's really a run. Like he prefers <laughs> to just get out. He follows along all the sidewalks, but he just runs and we try to keep up. But that is honestly probably the best. Just seeing him out in the world and exploring and finding the newness of stuff. And he's here's the plane and he looks up and he goes, pa, pa. And, you know, just all kinds of little, you know, every day is a new adventure, but I'm really enjoying the getting out into nature with him and walking around. So he'll keep you in shape and young. So, <laughs> well, I am so honored that you took time today to share your story and that again, we've known each other all our lives and we've come and gone in different seasons, but you have someone here that's supporting you and supporting your work and anyone that's listening to this, that you've experienced loss and, or, you know, someone in your immediate circle, friend, neighbor that has gone through it. So we all know someone that has unfortunately gone through this situation, email me, or I can connect you with Megan and we will get you the resources and tools and support and community that you need to yeah. heal as well. Yeah, because you're definitely not alone. I think that's just as a parting note. I always tell people like, you know, sometimes someone will say, I, I don't know how you're so strong to get. It's like, I'm going through the gamut still. Like we're still experiencing it and we always will. And there are days where it's really, really, really hard. But there's also days that we have a lot of great joys. And a lot of that stems from Luna and what she gave us. And just reach out, connect with family, connect with me, my husband. And, you know, we're here to just kind of help where we can and just to have another shoulder to lean on when it's just too much. Well, I love you. Thank love you. For you. All thank right. You. Thanks everyone for tuning in today. And thank you for just taking the time to listen to Megan's story and the the beautiful legacy that she's made out of heartache and out of the joy of Luna. And we will catch you next week. All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Subscribe to the Genesis Movement to empower women's voices and reclaim the power over your own narrative.